0: Manola Theatre acknowledges the traditional custodians on the land on which we meet, gather and make art, the Yagara and Turrible people, and we acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging.
1: This is our final uh, bonus episode of Begotten. You're here with Kat Decker. I'm Bianca Butler-Reynolds. We are the creative team behind Manola Theatre and Begotten, the five-part audio
0: fiction that um, you may have listened to four parts of so far. Yes, we only have one to go, which is a little bit sad, but um, if I can be so bold, I think the last one is actually my favourite. I think it's a Ah. lovely note to end on, and hopefully our listeners will discover that next week. I reckon they'll love it. So um, this week for our final bonus, um, I am going to put on my interviewing hat and talk to Kat a little bit about what it's like to be a director, both um, within and without the constraints of coronavirus and everything shutting down. So Kat, to start us off, do you want to talk a little bit about when the world is operating uh, as it usually does and we're allowed to do rehearsals and performances in theatres, um, what is important to you as a director? What what sort of philosophy or process do you like to work with?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Thank you, Bianca. Um, so I, I kind of cut my teeth on directing in some strange places. Um, so uh, I... Um, I've always loved hanging around in theatres and, and have worn a few different hats um, at different points, but when um, I was 20, 21, I believe, um, I got the opportunity to work alongside the Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble on um, their project called the Shakespeare Prison Project, which, as the name suggests, goes into um, uh, yeah, uh, prisons and, and incarcerated spaces and works with the people who live in those spaces to put on a piece of Shakespeare. Um, And so I went in there initially to observe and then I became a facilitator and then eventually I started directing some of those projects. Um, And uh, before I was doing too much work with uh, free people in the real world, um, I was learning how to direct normally first-time actors in um, yet what is quite a a strange world um, of, of its own limitations. So Um, I guess what I learned in that I I learned so many things in those projects but um, as a director I learned just to very much um, rely on finding the power and creativity of the people I was working with um, and that uh, the yeah the creative people involved in that space are the most important thing Um, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, yeah, I would say that. That's
0: maybe my philosophy. I'm yep. not written it down. I might work on it. <laughs> um, do you have a particular memory from your prison project experiences? There may be multiple memories where you were just really, um, I guess, impressed or, or blown away by the potential of this process to make a change for people? Uh,
1: y- yes, yes, I, I have. I have... Um dozens of of those experiences I think that would be one of the um most overwhelming parts of being part of that project for a number of years was uh seeing consistently um people with very limited confidence particularly when it came to performing um over the period of of a few months that we worked uh just really blossom into fantastically engaging um uh, actors on a stage and I I do have to say that the the performances of shakespeare i watched in that space um have been the most funny the most uh, comprehensible um the most authentic versions of those shows um of many of those shows that that i've experienced so yeah i think um uh, across the 5 years i worked on on that project um being able to learn how to uh foster someone's creativity um uh help them find their own unique voice um because it's um uh, Uh, it's it's particularly Shakespeare that we work with and so you're you're asking uh, people who feel as though maybe theatre is not for them and then Shakespeare specifically is not for them. Shakespeare is for people with money and private schools and has been performed by the best actors across centuries Um, and you're asking them to have a go at it and so needing to frame each performance as... um, you uh, may not be the best romeo that has ever been but only you will be able to do your version of romeo and mm. so i, I suppose I, I try and take that into rehearsal spaces um both inside and, and out of um uh incarcerated spaces um the uh the uniqueness of of every, of every actor and and helping um yeah
0: people find their own relationship to character sure that's really interesting um and I think actually speaks a little bit to what we were touching on last time we did a bonus episode with um people's uh, use of their own archetypes as a way of finding their access point to a character it sounds a little bit like yeah, what you're saying yeah there.
1: I agree I um I haven't uh it's it's been a little while since i've worked on the shakespeare prison project um we poured our passion into manola theater and um and a few other things came along and so i'm taking a bit of a break from that so i haven't gone into that space um h- having learnt from you the bits i know about archetypal <laughs> theory but i would be very interested to go with that new lens yeah um, and yeah and see how those spaces work knowing what i know now <laughs>
0: great uh, one thing i'm curious about is then when you transition out of working in an incarcerated environment to uh, a theatre on the outside what if anything are the key differences that you notice when you're working as a director in in a free space
1: I mean there are lots of similarities um uh I I always really um try and cultivate a rehearsal room that um feels safe and open um that that people uh, are there for the joy of it because you know in independent theatre we're not there for the money Um, so uh, trying to uh, embrace how um, a community is formed through an artistic um, uh, experience. Um, Most of the projects I work on, uh, being independent theatre and um, uh, having to work around the the lives of of, of the people involved, um, do happen over a period of of, uh, a few months um and so I, I know those lucky bastards who get to um get paid for their job might have a three week rehearsal <laughs> period or something like that but for us i really love that i really love forming um the particular family of every show we're involved in mm. um being able to yeah foster that creative space and and hopefully um uh allow all people involved in in the production to feel as though they have um just as much right as anyone to make a suggestion and and throw out an idea and um uh i i'm um at the moment exploring my practice as a teaching artist um uh so um yeah workshopping with both creatives early in their career and people who don't identify as as having a creative practice but who will find some benefit from from um uh, interacting with theatre and one of the things I heard early on um, uh, in this study of teaching artistry is that the work of a teaching artist and the work of a director are, are very much aligned and I, I really like that um, that my role as a director is to facilitate space and to empower um, people to find their own artistry um, and ideally not really to make too many decisions just to um,
0: yeah uh, make it possible for other people to find that out for themselves Mm, that's great um it kind of leads in an interesting way to a key question that I wanted to ask you today and I'm probably the weirdest person in the world to ask you this (laughs) question but Kat what's it like directing a writer to perform their own words
1: yeah it's a weird one hey um so uh if you've listened to these bonus episodes already um you'll know that Bianca and I um had our first uh True collaboration um, when I was directing her in her own work, um, Love You, Hate You, Drive You Wild. Um, one day, hopefully, will be remounted and you should all come and see it. It's great. There's a talking moose. <laughs> there is. There's <laughs>
0: an overweight David Bowie in person. <laughs> <laughs> so much good stuff.
1: Um, so uh, that has that kind of been the foundation of our working relationship, Bianca, is um, having had that experience. Um, and it was daunting um when when we first did it um uh bianca wrote this beautiful piece I, I really resonated with it as soon as i read it i found it very funny and very moving um and i'd seen bianca um as a performer multiple times before and was very impressed with with her with her chops um uh and then yes needing to com- combine um uh, the respect i felt for her wearing both those hats and then um tell her what to do with it um so i think I think I would be cautious um to make it a habit of directing lots of different people in their own writing um but it's one of the reasons we founded a company together because we found a way to make that relationship work um and I think early on we discussed um the the kind of transfer of perspective um that uh you were no longer in the rehearsal space wearing your writer's hat and, and kind of transferred the ability to look at this piece from the outside to me and to exist on the inside of it as an actor in that creative process. And And I've always found the give and take that we've developed with that to, to be um, easy and to
0: be uh, mutually beneficial. I don't know, do you agree? Yeah, yeah. I, I was just reflecting as you were saying that on um, – well, since we've started Manola Theatre, every time we've done a production, regardless of what other roles we've held, we've um, shared the producing duties of the show 50 50. But Love You Hate You was an interesting one where I was already self producing this work and I brought you on specifically as a director, but pretty much did all the producing duties myself and um so as well as being writer and performer i was making all the business decisions about the show and so such a crazy decision yeah yeah, it was wild um there i think there was a decision made early on between us that in order to keep the rehearsal room a kind of sacred space where i could exist just as an actor and take notes and, and get feedback we would um designate specific times to be production meetings and they would be separate from rehearsals and so much like moving between different characters or different archetypes I, I could swap hats between those spaces and so at production meetings I would be there with a the business mind on and, and making those decisions and then uh, when we went to rehearsals that was a different process and I got to kind of strip off one identity and put another one on and Yeah, I I think the fact that um, we were always on a similar wavelength with what we wanted to communicate through the play, I I was able to invest absolute trust in your vision. That's very nice.
1: (laughs) And then uh, we knew from the get-go Begotten was um, written for a specific outcome, which was to be performed by you as a a, a one-woman show um, and to be something that we uh, could – have as um a long-term project for the company that we wouldn't just do one production of this but that it would be developed um over a a variety of showings and um we we had originally planned to to tour the piece as well um this was when we thought it would happen in the theater before all the theaters closed down and broke our hearts um so uh i i knew what i was signing up for for before you'd even written many of the words on the page uh and I think by that point having worked on five or six shows together and and really found our our language of, of collaboration um we'd also had the experience of uh you being directed by me in another one woman show that hadn't been your writing but um I think the way we worked on Begotten followed a very similar format. Um, and that's a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. Being a, a solo performer
0: in a show, rehearsing oh, to one yeah. other person. It, it's very different from being in a scene with other people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In, in what ways? Um, well, one of the things I really enjoy so much about the theatrical process is the relationships you build with the rest of the team. And when the team is two people um, and, and you're in very different roles from one another... Uh I'm not going to say it's lonely but it it's different um cuz you're not going through that same process of relationship building that you would normally have with a fellow actor. Mm. So why do we do it? Um I think <laughs> because we're we're nerds for beautiful text and sometimes monologue can communicate things that a conversation can't. I mean, conversation communicates many wonderful, wonderful things and there will always be room for that in the work that we make. But monologue texts, uh, I think, just let you go so deep and so rich into material. And so uh, that's something that we value, I think, uh, as well as it being a much more translatable, travelable package, as, as we would sort of talked about with yeah. the touring perspective. I agree.
1: I, I will say... Um, that the process of directing you um when we thought we were putting on a uh in-person stage show versus the uh um audio format that that everyone is hearing um that that definitely had some shifts um and i'm i'm glad that we got as much in-person rehearsal time as, as we had prior to transitioning it into the audio format mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we did a lot of discovery work um uh, a lot of kind of foundational decision making um in the room together and while some of that was beautiful physical decisions that I can't <laughs> wait to share with the world some of that was also character building and and finding um relationship with text and so um we managed to uh spend some time rehearsing with with each of the characters before we um didn't see each other for, for quite some time except yeah. over zoom and so when uh we started the recording process and decided that um, you would uh, record a number of takes, and then my role as director was largely to choose between those takes, rather than giving you feedback in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it meant that, uh, yeah, some of that foundational work had been done. Yes. That yeah. being said, I, I do think um, that uh, the nature of of the setup meant that I, I took more of a backseat than I would have in a traditional. Um, production that we put on and so um i just need to acknowledge that begotten is is so much yours i mean everyone can hear your voice and we know that you're the writer as well but um yeah a lot of those in the moment um decisions being made of of how to approach uh the recording takes that that was happening all by yourself in a room so that's that's a huge thing you did
0: well i appreciate that i I would also say that my crippling insecurity means that i'm very reliant on having someone listen to it and and give me some feedback and helped me navigate which choices were the most successful. So uh, it's absolutely still a collaboration, although I thank you for your kind words. Awesome. Well, I think that was pretty much all I wanted to ask you for today. Thank you for sharing your insights as a director. A pleasure. It's been fun doing these little chats. It really has.
1: So uh, we think this is our last one, um, our last little bonus episode. Although uh, if you've loved listening to us and want us to have a regular podcast, I guess, tell us. Um, Yeah, for sure. uh, Oh, if you're not already, you should be following us on Facebook and Instagram. Yep, um, at Manola
0: Theatre, M-I-N-O-L-A. Hey, Bianca, why are we called Manola Theatre? Well, Kat, have you heard of this guy, Shakespeare? He wrote this oh, play yeah, called him. <laughs> uh, The Taming of the Shoe. is about the Manola sisters, Catherine, Katharina and Bianca. And the fact that those were our names was just too good a coincidence to overlook. It's a pretty good one. And Manola is just a pretty word. It is a pretty word.
1: Uh, So you can head to our website, manolatheatre.com.au, where you can download your own copy of Begotten in full um, in the way it was first presented to the world as a a full radio play. Um, You can also give us a little bit of money if that's something you would like to do to support us as independent creatives. Um, We wouldn't say no. Um, and Bianca, I think we need to talk a little bit about um, where we're recording and, and who supported us into making this um,
0: uh, into a five-part uh, podcast. Absolutely. Uh, we are so delighted to be being hosted for this podcast version of Begotten by That's Not Canon Productions, headed by the inimitable. Inimitable. Oh, that was going to be so cool oh, until I be messed so it good. up. <laughs> oh no, the inimitable Zane Weber. Thank you very much,
1: Zane. Thanks so much, Zane. So, um, uh, the creation of um the the radio play the five parts that you're hearing each character that was happening um during the the peak of the lockdown in um in all of our separate um bedrooms and home offices but these conversations we've been lucky enough to be able to be out in real life recording and then that's not canon studio so that's been really fantastic and thanks zane for letting us come and hang out it's
0: been awesome Thank you and thanks to our listeners for joining us on this journey. We might uh, hand you over now to our final uh, preview of the final episode of Begotten which is uh, joining the matriarch Leisha in her home of Ireland. Enjoy
1: listening to her and yeah, tell us if um if you've liked being on this journey with us.
0: If you ever want to get in contact, hit us up on our socials or hello at com My family always said I was gifted, magic somehow. My aunties were superstitious and tried to tell me that I was like a Celtic goddess. I thought they were mad. I had something of a gift and I suppose it made me a bit odd, but it was also inconsistent. I would at times know the outcome of a game before it had been played, or see the face of an old acquaintance in a dream the night before meeting them again. I sensed my Uncle Thomas's workshop would burn down a week before it happened, but I was a child and thought it a coincidence rather than a warning. When my auntie learned I'd had the vision and said nothing about it, she hit me hard across the face and said her husband died because of me. The rest of the family were wary of me after that, convinced that something that existed only in my mind had the power to curse them all. But Amen came to my rescue. He didn't blame me for his brother's death. I was just a child who'd had a bad dream. My family began to trust me again, reluctantly, after I burned my hand on the stove. They reasoned that, if I'd anticipated that happening, I'd have done something to prevent it. I was declared to be not a witch, but a sort of accidental apprentice-wise woman in whom the gift might appear as rarely or as often as a sneeze. The time of my birth was thought to be the reason. My Auntie Deirdre, forever gripping her whiskey bottle as if it were fused to both palms, proclaimed that a child born on the stroke of midnight at the turn of a century might conceivably catch a glimpse of the other world. That secret supernatural realm that shares the land with us I didn't care to be magic. I just wanted my family to be kind. I don't believe in coincidences. How much shit can happen on one street? One little insignificant street. Quiet, suburban, nothing shady until a year ago, and now two families are destroyed. A disappearance and a death exactly one year apart, and they live next door to each other. Something strange was going on on Hazel Street, and I was going to find out. Golden Ash, an episodic crime drama from That's Not Canon Productions.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more